This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello, everybody. (laughs) Yes, it's Dr. Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy. Joining me in the studio on this muggy Melbourne morning is Rainbow Doc. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Morning, Rainbow. I've got it question for you straight away uh-huh. as a psychologist what's the collective noun for psychologists <laughs> i don't know immediately what came to mind immediately was a shrink but it's not that no. sh- that would be a chaise lounge <laughs> <laughs> well I asked, I asked this because our special guests today are emily weir and izzy williamson they're psychologists in the making and they'll be talking about their new show everyone needs therapy which will be on for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Oh, that sounds Festival. like a, a plug for people like me. Yeah, the, well, we will see. They will be in talking about that, and they'll be in uh, just shortly. Uh, behind the desk, proving that multitasking really is a thing, is the man who can not only twiddle the knobs and buttons, but at the same time connect brain to mouth to provide erudite comment. <laughs> Welcome, panel beta. Great to be with you guys. Hello, panel beta. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I mean, your background isn't so much psychological as sociological, is that right? Yeah, I, um, it is. It's political science, sociology, and um, I teach a bunch of, you know, uh, junior psychologists when they're doing uh, their social work, de- you know, aspects of their social work degree, they come in and they do public policy and, and that sort of thing. Well, do I- any of them switch? They do, mm. yeah, yeah. I think it's happening a lot just generally through universities that students are entering in somewhere they're not necessarily exiting because, for a variety of reasons, mm. yeah. So that might have made our guests slightly twitchy knowing that a possible future teacher is sitting on the other side of the desk with a microphone. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, so we'll have them in a minute. But before we talk to our guests, we need to catch up with the medical news. <gasps> <laughs> At which point I'm going to start, okay. I'm going to start singing the little doctor doctor. Let's go back to the, that <laughs> comment about multitasking. Yeah, shall we? Doctor, give us the news. You're on 3RRR 102.7 with me, Dr Nick. We have Rainbow Doc and Paul Peter behind the knobs and buttons. And uh, we can talk a little bit about what's in the news health-wise. Rainbow, what have you got for us? Well, I always notice things that have anything to do with memory. Probably because, you know, like this morning I left the house... Uh, shut the front door and realised I hadn't got my car keys, they're inside the house. You know that kind of stuff? Yep, Uh, we all know that one. Yeah, as we get older that happens. So I was um, interested in a piece of research that has uh, just been uh, released from the University of Texas where they've been looking at um, how we forget and have found that it is actually... um, uh, requires more focusing, more energy for us to forget than it does for us to remember. Well, now, hang on, that's totally counterintuitive. I seem to forget things all the time with great facility. It requires no effort at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is exactly why I looked at this. Oh, what, what, are, the, what, are, the, what are they doing here? What are they finding? What, when we look at forgetting and remembering, we're normally studying the long-term memory structures of the brain. Mm-hmm. And this research team, team, instead of doing that, has been looking at the sensory and perceptive um, parts of the brain, the parts of the brain responsible for perception. And they found something 
are very different. You know, we know that we can forget, we know we can remember, we don't really know why we forget. Now, if we could find out how we forget, that would be pretty useful because, particularly in the area of trauma, for instance, you know, there's lots of things that we would like to like to be able to forget or to help ourselves to forget more easily. So, Rainbow, can I just ask for a definitional question? In, yep. in this sense, what does forget actually mean? I gather there's some contention about whether we truly ever forget it, we just can't access it. Well, whether it's not access, in other words, it's been shut down or removed, I, th I think we're talking about something being pushed right to the back so that it, it no longer interferes with our experience. So it doesn't really matter whether it's out of our brain or still in there in the recesses. What we're looking for is the ability to be able to uh, have uh, uh, forget memories so they no longer interfere with our current day experience. So what these researchers did, they used faces and they used scenes and they gave people instructions to either forget or remember these things um, using neuroimaging. And they found that um, it required more energy to forget than it did to remember if they looked at the uh, perception and uh, the sensory parts of the brain. Um, so, but that's a very interesting question, actively forgetting. Actively forgetting. Because, because there's that yeah. thing that people say, once you've looked at something, you can't unsee it. Yeah, forget about pink elephants. Yes. Don't think about pink elephants, yeah. that, that kind They're of flying thing. Flying all around the room as I look. Yeah, <laughs> and what they, what, they, what they found was that there was a certain level of, uh, if you want, energy required or activity in the brain required to forget. So it can't be too much because if there's too much, you're basically reinforcing that memory. If there's too little, there's, there's no, nothing happens. But there's this sort of window, window of opportunity, if you want, of, you know, if there is this moderate amount of, uh, 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 I'm searching for the word here, energy, power, whatever, activity, it's better, activity in the brain, that things could be forgotten. I think it's really interesting. I, mean, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. That Talking to people in my age group, the big concern is is about remembering. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and does this research tell us anything at all about that massive concern people have as they get older, memory isn't as good, they struggle more with names, they can't recollect what was that plot in that play I saw a month ago? Do you think this research helps us at all with that sort of forgetfulness that worries older people? Or is this really more about how we understand letting go of traumatic events and that sort of memory. Well, I think it could probably help, you know, with applications in, in both both cases, you know, because... But this is this is very early stuff, you know. If, if, if we could... Uh, if we knew how we could help people forget things, presumably we could also use that information to help us, you, Dr Nick, remember things. I, I think it's fascinating and I hope you can come back to us in about six months' time and tell me how I can remember because I will have forgotten this segment by then. Yeah, yeah but you know, you know that, that, that uh, you know, there's um, a body of work on, on memory that says that, if you, that you are much more intelligent if you forget things. I must if be your really not smart. So good, because <laughs> intelligence is about being able to filter things. If you remember everything... You're not going to be able, you know, you're not able, there's too much in there. What does that mean for repressed trauma, though? 
what does that mean when it's repressed? What, what does it mean it's, for understanding repressed trauma? Yeah, I can't answer that question. Oh, but, yeah. a, but, <laughs> but panel Peter, I think your question is excellent. Yeah, because, it is. Because that is about uh, do we remember things? Do we actively forget? Is it repressed? Do we have a choice about this? What are the mechanisms doing that? Well, yeah. if we come back to what I said before when you asked your very insightful question previously um, is that what we're really interested in is memories whether they're rip whether there's repressed memories or active memories of the impact that they have on our lives like you know if there is a memory and it has absolutely no impact on our lives it doesn't affect us negatively in any way mm. it doesn't matter where that memory is does it no. you know uh, I'm, I'm just concerned about this concept that smart people forget stuff that doesn't matter because my wife is really smart and she can tell me what clothes I was wearing when we went to dinner with someone 15 years ago. So there's a paradox there somewhere. She remembers every detail. Well, maybe she has got excessively brilliant ability to process huge amounts of information. And then there's that aspect of, um, uh, you know, the in the vernacular, photographic memory, and um, even um, and again in the vernacular, the Rain Man syndrome of being able to just recall yeah. all sorts of, you know, you can read the back of cornflakes packets or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know how much we know about how that functions, how that works. Where I've come across some discussion around it is with regard to sleep. And, and the metaphor or the analogy is, um, you know, rebooting your computer. And if you're getting good quality sleep, your brain is filing everything in different parts. And if you're having bad sleep, you might be filing it somewhere that you can't access it. Well, in our sleep, we are constantly forgetting and remembering. Yeah. You know, like the, our dreams are often the remembered part rather than the, 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 forget, the forgetting part. Yeah, right. Fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm watching you having a drink there, Rainbow. It reminds me of a couple of heat-related topics that I was thinking about for today because you're drinking a nice cold something out of a flask. There, As you know, it's warm. It's warm, is it? But I was very concerned about our guests who will be on here in a moment because um, Rainbow very kindly made a scalding hot cup of coffee. But those who were vigilant with the newspaper would have seen a little article saying that if you regularly drink your hot drinks too hot, then you are at a higher risk of esophageal cancer. So for the for the people like me who are always considered a bit of a wuss because I like my cafe latte at that 55 degrees, which some people think is just lukewarm, I'm safe. You know how we're big fans of dietary trends here at Radiotherapy. One of the ones going around at the moment is um, apple cider vinegar. Oh. And mm. I've been reading about uh, consequences for your esophagus drinking apple cider vinegar. Have you come across that, Dr. Nick? It hurts. So it you hurts. To, so you have to remember that our esophagus is aligned with this thing called squamous epithelium. Squamous epithelium, is the, they're the tougher cells that, that look after things and they, they can put up with a few bashes and bruises, but they don't like to be regularly insulted. They are sensitive souls. And if you throw too much tobacco, alcohol, spicy food hot food and possibly even apple cider vinegar. <laughs> Particularly if it's hot. They, hot apple cider vinegar, maybe. It, uh, so I'm not suggesting everyone who drinks a cup of coffee is suddenly going to get rampant esophageal cancer. But it was an, I just think it's a reminder that our bodies tell us something uh, and if it, it really is scalding hot, maybe it's not the best thing to have. We need to, to be gentle to ourselves. Exactly. Love our yeah. esophagus. The other, the other heat-related thing was the salmonella story which was all over the, uh, this week where a particular poultry farm had a, a nasty breed of salmonella salmonella enteritidis which infected their eggs and so on. 
hundreds of thousands of eggs were pulled off the supermarket shelf. It's a reminder that here we do need heat because if we want to make our eggs and our poultry safe, we have to get things over about 70, 72 degrees. Um, so it, it's not that you can't ever have things that are less than that, it's just that salmonella is dangerous for people who have poor immune systems, pregnant women, that sort of stuff. Um, and it, it sits on the outside of the eggshells in all eggs, forms of salmonella. So if you are using eggs that are not going to be cooked thoroughly, just make sure that the egg doesn't come in contact with the shell because that's where the bacteria come from. I remember growing up that we had a saucepan which was specifically for boiling eggs and I guess it was for that reason. And I can't quite think? see well, because it, you know, if because you're boiling it, you're the... killing the bugs. Uh, oh, okay. I can't see. If it's the saucepan, if it's really more things that are, that are at room temperature uh, because it's the shells that have the bugs on there. And, and chicken meat, of course, is commonly um, riddled with bacteria like salmonella. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. And you're listening to me, Dr Nick. I've got Rainbow and Panel Beater in the studio and we are joined now by our very special guests. We have Emily and Izzy. Welcome. Hi. Thank you very much for having us. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Now, the, the reason you're here is because you've got this new show coming up for the comedy festival called Everybody Needs Therapy, or Everyone Needs Therapy. Uh, just a quick plug, it's on for two weeks from April the 8th at the Tasma Terrace in East Melbourne. It's a little, one of those lovely little theatres, so get your tickets quick, you can buy them online. Uh, but I, I was really taken by your title because when I was doing my psychiatry training, which is a terrifyingly long time ago. I remember saying to the uh, psychiatrist, I said, well, how do you know who needs therapy? And he looked at me and said, everyone needs therapy. <laughs> so he's a friend of ours, apparently. He's been recruiting for several years. So tell us about the show. Where did it come from? How, how did this start? Well, we were just chatting about what ideas we could, um, you know, what we could do the show about. And we realised a common thread between each other. <laughs> yes, we've both been in therapy and both had psychologists for probably longer than most people would have had, I'd say. Can I, can I ask how, how long is how most people do in your oh. perception? All right, so I went to my first uh, psychiatrist appointment when I was eight uh, because I was being quite badly bullied at school and everyone thought that I might not have been OK with that. But, yeah... <laughs> I'm only very new. Um, I only went in first year of uni because I struggled with adapting to uni life. It was very different from what I was used to. Um, and honestly, like, I wish I went sooner. Right. And, and, and your background, you're both studying psychology, is that correct? Yes. Yes. So it's my third year now in psychology studies. Uh, and I am in my second semester of an online diploma at Monash University, and I'm very much enjoying it. But it, yeah, fits nicely around work as well. And, and I struggle a little bit to think, well, you've both been in therapy or still are. You know how complicated, how personal, how emotionally challenging that can be. How can you make a comedy show about that? <laughs> I think personally how I've made a comedy show about that is because I have learnt to enjoy the process of therapy. I've learnt to enjoy the process of telling people about my life and finding the little things in it that are happy, the little things in it that can be funny, and the little things in it that maybe everyone could share and learn from. Uh, so I've been always been very open about the fact that I've gone to see uh, mental health professionals 
Um, and I think that uh, that openness, in a way, and being vulnerable can actually be funny. I think people finding out, oh, you know, I did this super embarrassing thing, but now I'm happy to talk about it. And I think that that is quite funny. Yeah, and I'm the kind of person I like to laugh at my own trauma because if you don't laugh, you cry. So I'd rather laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so that makes writing the show very easy. Yeah, actually, writing the show was very easy because we mostly we just sat in front of each other. We had a director, and we watched our conversations together and when he laughed we were like oh okay <laughs> can I ask um you know I'm not asking you to name your therapist name your mm. psychologist but I'm just wondering whether they use humor because you know psychologists comes in come in all shapes and sizes and some use humor and some some psychologists aren't very funny at all to be honest mm. so is is that something that <laughs> I don't laugh at that <laughs> Um, is that something that um, has, it has inspired you because there's a use of humour in your therapy? Um, well, my first uh, psychologist, I went in and I practised a stand-up routine on her and she didn't laugh. Um, <laughs> so that didn't work. I was like, oh, maybe not the right audience for this. <laughs> was, was that a, a person-centred approach and, and, and this is what you wanted to do? I just, like, wanted to make a joke out of the situation. I don't really, like... For myself, I struggle with addressing things seriously. Um, so I thought I could just tell her about my trauma in a stand-up routine. You know, that might work. <laughs> At the end of it, after she had laughed, she just finished with, you've got a problem. <laughs> I can't think of anything that would compound trauma more than trying to do a comedy routine in front of a psychologist and getting not one laugh. I, I actually think uh, you can have psychologists that funny... The things they say are funny looking back. We have a section in the show where we talk about some things that therapists have said to us that have really, really, at the time, <laughs> potentially made us cry, but looking back were s just solid gold comedy material. So we've just stolen some of their routine. Now, I want to ask you, because you mentioned that uh, Emily said it was bullying when you were at yeah. school. So there was a young woman talking in the news um, just this week. Uh, she was on um, 774 talking about her experience, trying to get into the police force. Mm that she had applied and apparently did very well and listening to on the radio, articulate, intelligent young woman. But she had been through a similar experience of having been bullied at school, saw a psychiatrist, and she saw that psychiatrist between year 11 and 12, mm -hmm. didn't see the psychiatrist after that, but then was rejected in her application because of having been through that experience and told she could never apply again. Now, that seems to me an extraordinary negative that comes out of what we're trying to make a positive which is let's be open about mental health mm. issues let's seek help and say that this is something that we should do do you feel any concerns that your experience that you're now outing yourself as having been in therapy seen a psychiatrist could ruin your job career i have always been quite fearful of that actually um and i i now know uh i now know that it's out in the open and everyone knows that about me but I think there's a changing perception and I hope that this can follow through to uh, the young woman who was rejected by the police at some stage in her career learning that what you learn in therapy actually makes you a resilient human being it makes you able to uh, act in a uh, you know to, to monitor your own behavior know what you're doing be a, an aware person and it can actually make you I think better at your job but I think everyone in my job is quite uh, quite respectful 
they're quite respectful and they all are quite open about their own mental health. I, uh, one of my colleagues was volunteering for Beyond Blue this week and, yeah, I hope it really changes. I really do because it's... Which is sort of easier to say when you work in the field. Yeah. Um, but there will be people who have been bullied at school who mm. want to have careers in areas, say, mm. the armed forces, uh, yeah. the police, that sort of thing, or maybe in some businesses where mm. some business people may still be living in the dark ages and think that any question about mental health means someone's what about you is he i mean does this concern you at all from the prospect yeah, of the future definitely because it breeds a culture of staying quiet and not talking about your issues and for example like if you had a physical issue everyone would like encourage you to go see a doctor but suddenly when it's mental people are less accepting of that um, which i think is a huge issue um, that needs to like we need to do something more to fix this because otherwise you know but also, I was thinking about it, and um, if the workplace is telling you, okay, if you seek psychiatric help, we're not going to let you have a job here, you have to look at the workplace. Why don't they want somebody who has help? Is it because they don't want to put safety procedure procedures in? Do they want to, like, turn a blind eye to it and not have to address these things with their workforce? So it's a huge issue, which I hopefully we can... Can try mm. solve. Yeah. I, mean, well, I mean, workplaces need to look after, need to support the mental health as well as the physical health of of their employees. We know that, but this is diff this is trying to stop someone coming in so that they have to be supported. And I guess from the perspective of you know we're looking at probabilities. What is the probability that this person is going to have difficulties in the future? That's what it's based on. But also on how that was, if you want, diagnosed in the first place. Because I know, for instance, people, you know, if you're going, um, if you're self-employed and you're going for um, income protection, we don't need to be self-employed, but you may be more likely to do it if you're self-employed, you're going for income protection. If you have in your medical record that you have had a diagnosis of anxiety or depression, that can mean that that is taken off. You know, you are not going to be insured for that. And sometimes, you know, with mental health care plans, people go to their GPs, they get a referral and they fill out the K-10 and it comes up, and, you know, and the letter is written, anxiety or depression, one or the other. Mm -hmm. Now, that goes on your medical record. It could, in fact, and I I'm talking about this from the heart because this has happened to me, having sought... I've, I've been in therapy, having sought some help at the time of a relationship breakdown and it was, it was uh, to get a mental health care plan, it was um, on paper depression when in fact it was adjustment mm -hmm. and I didn't even know that, I didn't look at it, I didn't mm -hmm. think about it until I tried to take out that insurance and I couldn't get cover. Oh, just <laughs> that's, that's I mean, the nightmare, what, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a very important point and a, a similar anecdote. I know a woman, a uh, middle-aged woman, self-employed, had been to her GP for just minor bits and pieces of stress, which were all sorted out, so that there was nothing in the file to say all, all there was was the referral and it was all finished. And she wasn't even um, given a sort of loading. She was refused point-blank insurance and of course then every time you go for an insurance afterwards they say have you ever been refused an insurance policy yeah. so it's it I, I find this a very vexed area because we're trying so hard to say and and I, I think it was you Emily made the mm. point people who do this who get the therapy 
get themselves sorted out. Yeah. We, yeah. we want those people. Mm. Yeah. We don't want the people who are sitting at home wringing their hands and in a terrible state, yeah. terrified to get help. We want people to get help, to get things sorted out so that they can function better in the workplace. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I even had the same experience I, I've just remembered with my driver's licence having a record of having a bipolar diagnosis and a history of other mental illnesses on my record um, and writing that when I applied for my driver's licence. I had to get a mental, uh, a mental health examination, a full, full physical, every time I want to get a driver's licence. Every, It's been, I think, uh, once a year at least, they make me get one. And I don't know, I don't know if it affects my driving, uh, but... That seems I, extraordinary it, It's. I me. was very shocked... But I am also. I also understand that it's not just uh, your physical health that impacts how you drive. Yes, and, but, to, yeah. and to be fair to DVLC, the Drivers Licensing yeah. Authority, um, often with mental illness, they're questioned mm. about medication and whether medication mm. affects people's driving. Absolutely. So that's that's a lot of the reason why we. I want yeah. to. I want to come back to your show. I want to come. <laughs> oh, back, sure. Yeah. I want Sorry, to that was my fault. I took I, it somewhere <laughs> completely different. But but one thing that fascinates me: you're, you're busy young women. You've got an awful lot to do. You're studying and so on, and yet you're also <laughs> writing, performing professional comedy. How does this work? Where does this come from? Where's the whole performance thing begin for you? I think uh, my mum actually put me through speech and drama lessons because I was being bullied at school and she thought it might make me more confident. Okay. And it did. Uh, It definitely did. I mean, I enjoyed performing and I enjoyed getting that, uh, hearing people people interact with me in that setting. Uh, I've just always uh, been my middle child, always wanted to be... uh, Get, get a bit more attention. So well done, Mum. <laughs> what, what about you, Izzy? I was never into performing, um, but I just stumbled into comedy accidentally and I haven't left since. Um, so this was like the next step in the comedy goal to do a show. So here we are. How did you stumble into comedy? <laughs> yes. it's, it's not something you just... You slipped just, on a banana peel. You, you <laughs> slipped on a banana peel and you ended up at the Melbourne University uh, Comedy Review Board. Is that how things happened? Yes. <laughs> one of the hardest, th- one of the hardest things in comedy I learned in my brief foray into mm. it back in the UK um, is the writing. Mm. So lots of people can perform to some extent. I was very mediocre, and other mediocre people were there. But the writing was the hard bit. I could yes. never write. <laughs> yeah. So who does the writing? We both do. We um, we both do. I'm a copywriter by profession. And I find writing large volumes of words very easy, but then the editing process, whereby we actually have to find the things that are funny, <laughs> we need three heads for that. And that's Izzy, myself, and our director. Um, we, we need to really work on that. And who we... makes the decision whether something stays or goes? Well, we just have a big argument. <laughs> uh, the Facebook <laughs> chat gets very heated. Um, I think I've used some... Uh, particularly choice choice words, um, as in, no, I don't want it, delete it now. Right. I think that's a phrase that I pull out all the time. Yes. And then you go and try it out on your therapist. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> See how the reaction is. Yeah, I think that my therapist would love our show. I actually should send her an email. Yeah. Yes, you should. I really should. And With then a... we have to question whether it is ethically okay as a therapist <laughs> to go and see your client it's perform. not. I think it is not. <laughs> with a um, with a show with the subject matter of the one that you're doing, um, 
how much is, in fact, you know, performance as we might understand it, you know, in some kind of acting sense, um, and how much of it is bringing yourselves on stage um, and just expressing who you are? There's a bit of both. We have some characters we play. We also act as ourselves. Mm. But we also have Frank... And Frank will just be very frank. Oh, we have a character called Frank Discussions. Where did Frank, where did Frank come from? Um, his name's Frank Discussions. His name is Frank Discussions. Initially, I wanted to model him off Guy Fieri, um, but, however, he's become a straight character and he just says the things that we're all thinking. Yeah. I, lo- I love the concept of a character called Frank who we haven't yet heard of. And so <laughs> for those that find that little teaser enticing, that means you just have even more reason to come to the show. Um, we'll be talking more psychology after the next break. It's, it's wonderful to hear you say. I, I heard what you said, Rainbow. I think this deserves just reminding that the boundaries, the ethical boundaries in matters psychological can be very complicated. And while we're, we're being humorous about this, it's really important. What you just said about, and you said it actually, I thought very clearly, your sense would be that it would not be an appropriate boundary for a therapist to go to someone's live show. Do you, do you want to just expand slightly on that? Oh, oh don't get me started on this one. Um, There are so many occasions that I have uh, wanted to go and support my clients in some way. And clients, you know, you kind of become an important part of a client's life and they are wanting you to become more a part of their life sometimes. So there have been art shows, uh, funerals, parties, things that you know get invited to and have to say no and it seems ridiculous but um if you if you stick to the kind of guideline of if you uh if you know stuff about your client that they didn't bring to you for instance you know if you work with someone who is known a celebrity someone who is in the public eye to not read about them because otherwise you are influenced by someone else's opinion of them rather than of, um, of, of what they are bringing into the room. And it jeopardises the work that you're doing. So, you know, if you, if you went to a funeral, for instance, one, there's a confidentiality thing. If people say, who are you? You can't talk to anyone. You're this, this person. But also you start to... You, you have there's a potential of meeting other people people connected with your client and having their opinion their you know their personal relationship with that person come into the therapy room triple r not for everyone for anyone i um just want to talk about what everyone is talking about really in psychological um circles at the moment psychiatric circles is is trauma um, trauma is kind of the word and the thing not to be forgotten in therapy um, these days. And um, things have things have changed a lot over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, um, being led originally by Bessel van der Kolk's work, who he's actually in, in Melbourne this week, at the end of this week. Where's he from? Bessel van der Kolk was one of the first people who started um, uh, talking about the need that the mind-body connection and the need to work with the body when we work with trauma 
Um, he wrote the book The Body Keeps the Score, which uh, was a bestseller. Um, and now he travels around the world and he speaks to, you know, in Melbourne he'll be down at the exhibition uh, centre talking to, I don't know how many they fit in there, for a couple a of days. A few more than 30, which is what... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, and it's probably sold out. Um, so that's what he does. But he... And, and, str- and struggled initially to, to be taken seriously, I suppose, in this, because, you know, as a, as a psychologist, we don't touch people. You know, that's the idea. We don't touch people. But, that, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't work with the body. Of course we work with the body. You know, I'm an emotion-focused practitioner and, therefore, the body is, is really, really important because this is where the emotions sit. So, sorry, emotion-focused practitioner, can you expand on that to explain what that means? Um, without wanting to just take over this whole segment about talking about emotion-focused therapy, but rather than working, you know, there is a focus on uh, um, uh, allowing and, uh, and encouraging uh, clients to express and experience their emotions we work with those emotions rather than just manage them so okay. seeing emotions as a source of information and um, uh, prioritizing the need to work with emotions and through doing lots of training in in other modalities I've realized as emotion focused practitioners we get used to letting emotions out a lot of um, a lot of therapists are, uh, and and people generally, I think, are scared of emotions and want to contain them, want to kind of minimise them and keep everyone safe. We need to keep people safe, but in that process, we also need to allow the emotions to be expressed. And working with the body, you know, there there are there's a plethora of different approaches to working with trauma these days. For instance, you know, there's yoga for trauma. There's, there's uh, somatic experiencing, there's breath work for trauma. There are lots of different approaches, not necessarily evidence-based, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't work, but not evidence-based, that are helping a lot of people work with their trauma and uh, allow the body to release that trauma so that, coming back to that thing, you know, the ultimate aim is to improve people's well-being and their experience of life. So what's this new form of therapy that you've brought to us today? Well, I wanted to talk about one particular approach that I had some contact with recently, which is integral somatic psychology, which um, uh, was originated by a clinical psychologist by the name of Dr. Raja Selvam, who's now based in Germany. And he last month brought the training in this, I won't call it a modality, I, I think it's more a technique. It's not a whole approach. It is a complementary um, technique, I guess, to help therapists work with with trauma. Um, and he's the the premise behind this um, and behind a lot of um, approaches to trauma is that it is important to be able to experience the emotion and to do that, the emotion that is. Uh, uh, tied up with the trauma but to do that is really hard and what happens is our defences 
get in the way. We either, you know, we dissociate, we numb out, we do whatever we can, we use drug and alcohol, whatever we can to get away from the experience of that emotion. It's too much to tolerate. So this approach, um, ISP, Integral Somatic Psychology, is really a, a method of being able to teach clients, teach people how to uh, increase their level of tolerance of an emotion. If we are able to hold the emotion, to experience and, and be okay enough with it, then it allows our cognitive processes to, um, to happen effectively rather than them being cut off because our body and our mind is trying to self-protect from the distress that's and the dysregulation that's that results from from the high level of emotion. So, so I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to see how that's different from psychology in a more general sense. What what actually with integral somatic psychology are we doing differently? Okay. So if you if you think about this is how I like to think about it. If you've got a piece of toast and you've got a lump of Vegemite, I don't like Vegemite, but nevertheless, Vegemite, it's, it's a strong taste, and you put the Vegemite on a corner of the piece of toast and you eat it, it's not going to taste very nice. If you spread the Vegemite over the piece of toast, it might actually be quite yummy. It's a very important principle with Vegemite. It has to be spread evenly and right to the edges. Yeah, right. Yes. So if we do that, you know, most intense emotions are often, often will have a centre somewhere. We feel them in our chest or in our stomach. And, the, and they're extremely intense, so intense that the body will uh, move away from them. You know, there are defences that are problematic in our lives. But if we are able to spread that emotion throughout our body, it becomes more tolerable. So the question is how to do it. And this approach is how it gives, gives us a, a way of doing it by not touching, not touching a person, but asking them to use their own touch to, with the intention of spreading the emotion throughout the body so that it becomes tolerable. So there really is a physical element to it. There is a the, physical element to it. But it's the client's it. own touch that is the physical element. Yeah. I, I love your metaphor because now it makes sense to me because we do, we talk about the knot in the stomach, don't we? Or I feel my tension always in my neck or my jaw. Yeah, And yeah. if that's the Vegemite lump and we can spread it through the body, yeah. and it, in, it becomes more manageable. And in post-traumatic sense, you know, sometimes the sensation is throughout the body, you know, is, is, is throughout the body, in which case it's not that there isn't a need to contain and ground people and keep them safe, but if, if, the, if the experience of the emotion is, is intolerable, to try and work to, towards increasing the ability to tolerate. And psychology seems to be moving into this more physical modality. I mean, recently, EMDR the eye movement desensitization reprog yeah. reprogramming which is using the physical effects of eye movements to try and reprogram traumatic experience which again seems to me a little bit like this it's about saying we can do something physically to change how we feel mentally yeah and there is no doubt that you know we can process trauma we can work through trauma with actually not hearing the whole story yeah. that if we can allow the body to release the effects of that trauma, then the, the content, if you want, the story doesn't need to be 
retold. And that, of course, for a lot of people is really attractive. People that are wanting to work through their tra- past trauma, that is a very attractive thing. So the not idea having of to relive it. Yes. Yeah. So, so, yeah. I, want to, so yeah. I want to ask Emily and Izzy, our psychology students who are in the studio with this. Uh, trauma is something which has increasingly been talked about in the world of psychology. I don't quite understand why it wasn't <laughs> always talked about. Is this something which you've heard people focus on in your studies? Uh, I haven't had, uh, having only had two semesters, I haven't had that, but I did have for hypnotherapy when I was about uh, 16, I had hypnotherapy for past trauma. And I found that process to be utterly bewildering. And um, I'm very interested to hear that there are other modalities, other ways that we're uh, processing through this now. When you you say bewildering, do you mean, was it helpful? Oh, no, I, I just... It wasn't helpful for me. Mm. No, I just had panic attack after panic attack. Okay. Yeah, uh, it was it was a very odd experience. I, I don't think I was quite ready. Because there is the sense that, you know, if someone has lived, say, 20 years really struggling in life because of a past trauma, that to have maybe mm, three, four, five hours that are really unpleasant may be worth it in order to get somewhere in order to move past it but of course you're only going to you're only going to be able to do that if the person is willing and and is is willing to collaborate with this and understands the process that is about to happen Mm. you know now people who are listening to this might be thinking i i would like to try and get this kind of help uh, as, a, as a GP myself who might be making the ref- referral, I would struggle to know how to find someone who did integrated somatic psychology, apart from the one person I've met today <laughs> on well, the other side of the world. Well, there's, and so, I would work with, I don't, you know, I don't have enough experience with it myself. But and my, this is a thing that's qu- new. So my mm-hmm. question is, but if not just about this new form, but in a general sense, when people are looking for psychological help, there's this sea of option out there. How do people know what to look for and what kind of therapist they should be seeking? I think that's a it's a very good question, Dr. Nick, because there are so many approaches and uh, horses for courses in a way. You don't know what is going to, if you want, make the difference for you. You know, you can... I, I always suggest to people that they try different things. And, of course, there's the, there's the what's accessible, you know, like... Um, if you are reliant on on Medicare or on services that are free or very low cost, it may mean that you know your your options are really limited. So I want to ask you, Izzy, perhaps specifically, when you went to get help for therapy, which you talked about earlier in the show, did you know what you were looking for? Did you just get sent somewhere by somewhere? What was the process? Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I just couldn't stop crying. So I went to the um, the school counsellors, um, the psychologists they had there, and I had no idea what they were doing to me. They were just talking, raising, you know, I was talking about how I felt. And it's really hard because I didn't really know what I needed to address. And it wasn't until I did this show, actually, where we sat down and we were talking about our own experience where I've been able to now actually like pinpoint yes this is something that I need to go and address but before I had no idea. Um. Yeah, I was lucky because my mum's a general practitioner so I was very very easily introduced to the process because she knew that process 
but I know that so many people would find it completely bewildering. And even having that medical parent, I still found it fairly bewildering at times. It's and not I, easy to find uh, help. As a general practitioner myself, mm. I often struggle to know what kind of therapy or mm. therapist is right for someone. And then even if I have a vague idea what someone might need, where do I find that person? It is, it's a very difficult area. Um, well, I saw this um, recent study, in fact, um, with psychology, that the more people went to seek help and it didn't work for them, the less likely they were to go and get more help. And it's like, just because it didn't work the first time doesn't mean that it doesn't work. There is an option out there for you, but it's just not one that you've tried yet. And that's right. It's really, you know, that first experience is quite pivotal because it can it can put people off seeking help for a long time, you know. But I would say that the people that, uh, you know, if people, the more people know about it, the more they make an informed choice, the more likely it is that they are going to be able to commit mm. to the process. Part of, um, there's a connection with this issue and that of making it possible for people to talk about mental health more broadly socially, professionally, etc. Um, and it's kind of, in a sense, the way I think of it is having a mental health literacy because if the client, the patient, whichever word we're most comfortable with, um, is sitting in front of somebody for the first time and trying to explain what's going on for them, having a literacy around this means that they can ask the counsellor, the psychologist, the psychiatrist very particular questions and then understand the answer for themselves. But if you don't know what you don't know, you're very vulnerable. It's like if you've got no mechanical expertise and you take your car to the workshop, you know, you don't know what you just say, oh, it's got blue smoke coming out the back. And, you know, <laughs> you don't like the sound of the engine or something. Yeah. To ask the question, how do you work? And how does that work? What can I expect? Can you tell me about this? And I, I think people are, can ask that question, you know, before they've parted with any dollars, you know, before they've actually had the appointment to, to ask the the practice yeah. or to ask, ask the people. But, of course... Again, I, some people don't have any choice. No, no, and, and don't even know how to evaluate the answer. So, That's right. you know, CBT is the big catch-all at the moment, you know, cooking behavioural therapy. And, and how does somebody dealing with a, a therapist for the first time... Because if, if somebody generically explains CBT to you, it sounds great, right? Um, and, but, but it's not for everybody... And even for those people it sounds great for, you know, they're hearing it for the first time explained to them, they go, oh, that, yeah, that sounds all right. But it m may not be. Yeah. It, is, it is a very, very complicated area. And what I always say to anyone when I'm referring them for the first time, uh, you go at least twice, so one visit isn't enough. But if after the second visit it doesn't feel right, whatever that feeling is, come back and let's have a think about it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, you're back with me, Dr Nick, on Radiotherapy. It's almost time to wrap up. I would say thank you again to our really wonderful guests, Emily Weir and Izzy Williamson. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's been beautiful. And their show, Everyone Needs Therapy, is on for two weeks, just two weeks from April the 8th at the Tasma Terrace in East Melbourne. Tickets are really cheap. They're only 20 bucks or 15 if you've got a concession. And as they say themselves, it's the cheapest therapy session you'll ever attend 
and the funniest. It will be. <laughs> I'll certainly be there. Rainbow, it's wonderful to have had you back on again and thank you for all your input. Thank you, Dr Nook. I look forward to seeing you next time, whenever that is. Uh, we'll look forward to that in a few weeks' time. And panel beater, you wizard, you guru. <laughs> <laughs> thank you oh, so you much. You say all the right things. Yeah, Yay for panel beater. <laughs> no, you've, you've made it all work. Thank you very much for both twiddling the boss buttons and for all the insights. Uh, I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen to us anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. And you can always download the podcast to listen again and again and again. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.